This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. John and I have an exciting episode in store for you, and of course, I'm not biased. We're going to chat about a different type of article. John's going to chat about a review article actually on pulmonary hypertension, mainly so I can refresh myself on the complexities that is pulmonary hypertension. So John, thank you for taking the harder of the two articles. Uh, happy to. Uh, I know it brings me back to my Royal College days when I was like struggling to memorize as much as I could about pulmonary hypertension and then uh, unfortunately forgetting some of it. But hey, here we go. Let's remind ourselves. Yeah, what a terrible, terrible waste of time that was. Royal College, if you're listening, this is me, John Fralick, telling you what a terrible exam this is. <laughs> Yeah, great. <laughs> Thanks, Royal College. <laughs> All right. So under the bus he goes. Okay, John, tell us uh, about this review article. What was it called? And well, I don't know. Teach me something. Yeah. So this was the Diagnosis and Treatment of Pulmonary Arterial Hypertension, a review article published by Roop et al. in JAMA from April 2022. All right. No research question, of course, but give me like the bare bones. What was this all about and why was this important to you? Yeah. So, you know, pulmonary arterial hypertension has, you know, unfortunately non-specific symptoms, but really life-threatening implications. Uh, it is a rare disorder, about 10 cases per million adults in the U.S. And so this review article just gave a nice overview of, you know, what do we know when it comes to diagnosis and, and what do we have available when it comes to treatment? All right, cool. And then like, how did they go about doing this? Is this some form of a, a review or a systematic review? Or, yeah. What did they do here? Yeah, you know, it was sort of like one of these kind of scoping type reviews. They searched PubMed from 1985 to December 2021, and they focus on articles that were relevant for clinical practice, including randomized control trials. Large-scale observational studies were also prioritized. It makes sense to me. And yeah, how many articles did they come across? Uh, what were the basics there? Yeah, they found 99 papers, of which 23 were randomized controlled trials. There were a handful of meta-analyses and systematic reviews, 36 observational studies, a few registry-based studies, and then there were a few kind of practice guidelines as well that offered some opinions and advice. Okay, cool. And yeah, what were the main findings here? Yeah. So again, you know, pulmonary hypertension itself is classified into five groups and pulmonary arterial hypertension is group one. And then to make things more complicated, there's also kind of subtypes within pulmonary arterial hypertension. So as with everything in medicine, things can just be idiopathic and that's about 40% of cases. And then heritable causes that happens in about six to 10% of cases. And then there's other things that, you know, you and I might think about a little more commonly like drugs. So in particular, methamphetamine is one of the common ones we think about. And one of the tyrosine kinase in inhibitors for CML, uh, desatinib is another kind of potential culprit. Um, and then there's also pulmonary arterial hypertension that's associated with connective tissue disease. And this can be in like 15 to 25% of patients. So in particular, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, Sjogren's, also there's HIV associated as well as portal hypertension associated. And there's some other ones as well. You know, the definition, so really we're talking about mean pulmonary arterial pressures that are greater than 20 millimeters of mercury on a right heart cath. And really like that is like the diagnostic standard. Previously, they used a cutoff of 25 millimeters of mercury. I don't remember that from my Royal College days, but now we can know that it's actually 20. And that was because the evidence showed that in these lower pressure groups, they're still at fairly high risk for mortality and hospitalization. So in addition to the pulmonary arterial pressure cutoff, there's also like a wedge pressure of 15 millimeters of mercury or lower and a pulmonary vascular resistance of three wood units. So remember that for Royal College, but you know, practically it doesn't really have a lot of like day-to-day -day implications. No, yeah, three wood units. It sounds like a club that I'd have in my golf bag. A three wood, yeah, th three wood. 
<laughs> pull out the three wood. <laughs> anyway, okay, keep going. What's the uh, clinical criteria and all that jazz? Yeah, so clinically, you know, unfortunately, the symptoms that are commonest are really non-specific. It's dyspnea and fatigue. Sure, on physical exam, there might be things you could identify, like features of right heart dysfunction. But then, when it comes to other tools that we would consider, so for you know, an ECG, thirteen percent of the time it's normal, but you could have some findings for things like you know, right axis deviation, RVH, or other features for right heart strain. Pulmonary function tests, typically it's normal spirometry. Lung volumes are usually normal as well, and it's reduced DLCO. And the reduced DLCO is seen in about 78% of patients. And then when it comes to diagnosis, again, like, you know, the right heart cath is definitive diagnosis, but echo is often the tool that we then think about to like assess the right side of the heart. And so there's been two meta-analyses that have looked at this. And when it comes to a sensitivity for pulmonary hypertension, it's 85% sensitive and the specificity is about 70 to 74%. So I think it's more just a reminder that like, you know, if you're still worried about this disease, the echo itself might not be enough to uh, tell you if, you if you're getting the diagnosis or not. And so you, you still have to think about your patient. I think the other important thing is just prognosis wise, there have been things that have gotten better. So prior to the current kind of specific pulmonary arterial hypertension treatments, five-year survival was about 34% after diagnosis. And of course, it would take some time to get to diagnosis in the first place. But more recent data in kind of more of a modern era shows that one-year survival is about 61 to 64%. And I think really one of the key take-home messages here is that these patients need to be in a specialty center with experts who know what they're doing. And there's data to show that that results in lower hospitalization as well as increased survival. We we won't get into the nitty gritty for treatment because truly, if I'm worried about this diagnosis, I am referring them to my colleagues in respirology who will be able to then start treatment for them. Who, who will then refer to them to their colleagues who are respirologists with expertise in pulmonary hypertension. <laughs> There's a system, right? There's a system. <laughs> but you know, there are drugs and it seems that like often the approach is using a few different medications that target different pathways that ultimately are trying to lead to vasodilation, particular the pulmonary vasculature. But when you look at the studies and the outcomes that they look at, a lot of the outcomes are really based on things like a six minute watt test improvement or other things like, you know, some functional improvements as well. But, you know, these combination of medications. So these include things like Tadalafil, which is a phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitor. You know, it's a combination of therapies that ultimately do help from a functional perspective and, and probably lead to that improvement that we've seen over time from a mortality perspective as well. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, like pulmonary hypertension, you have seven different subcategories, like no one is going to be able to remember that. I just think it's painful. You have such a rare disease and then you want to have seven subtypes. But anyway, okay. I, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the best pearls, like you mentioned, is the sensitivity and specificity of echocardiogram. They're both kind of garbage, which makes sense anything that is that freaking rare, you know, like good luck finding something that's going to be really good to rule it in or rule it out apart from, I don't know, some amazing biomarker that hasn't been found yet, or really, you know, a right heart cath, because I, you know, obviously I know it's important that we talk about this and we think about it, but oh, what an awful disease to have to have. Like the treatments are kind of crummy and they improve your sort of you know, these surrogate outcomes about your six minute walk test, but um, doesn't seem like they really, really move the needle in terms of mortality with maybe, 
you know, an exception here or there. Is that kind of right? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that like, you know, people who are experts in this field would say that there are, you know, better, good modern treatments, but at the end of the day, like, you know, you're not going to have these huge randomized controlled trials showing huge evidence because again, it's a rare disease as you've identified, which makes it really hard to study it as well. But, you know, I think more than anything, I think practically, Yes, we're not supposed to be thinking about zebras when we practice medicine, but there is sort of a phenotype, you know, for like, maybe it's like a younger patient who just has ongoing dyspnea and, you know, make sure that you're at least considering like, do I need to think about pulmonary hypertension in general as a potential culprit for their dyspnea, for their non-specific symptoms? Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I think it is good to sort of you know, highlight and remember the drugs, you know, methamphetamine, desatinib, that's new to me, but certainly a methamphetamine. That's a pretty commonly used medication or drug, I should say. And then the connective tissue disease associated. I, I vaguely remember that from my Royal College days. But uh, anyway, what is the uh, kind of take home point here? I guess the take home may be twofold. Think about pulmonary hypertension in your patients. And then if you're thinking about it, get them referred to a specialist. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And yeah, I think the echo points is a, is a great pearl. So anywho, we're going to move back to our sort of usual style. So I guess listeners feel free to let us know if you, you know, like the idea of us, including review articles now and again, or if we should just focus on the research stuff. So anyway, trial that I'm going to be talking about is called prefusion F protein based respiratory syncytial virus immunization in pregnancy published in Nijim in April of 2022. RSV. Okay. And pregnancy. Uh, interesting already. But what was the research question here? Yeah. So really, this was a phase 2B clinical trial, and they wanted to predominantly assess you know, the safety and immunogenicity of this fancy new vaccine. Okay. So tell us more. What is this vaccine and, and why did you think this was important? So RSV is a major cause of illness and death in infants worldwide, and it could be prevented um, by vaccination. Of course, we don't have a vaccine that's any good, but this idea of what if you vaccinated mum and whether or not that will lead to antibodies um, being passed on to the baby to, to potentially protect the baby. And, you know, why am I talking about babies? Well, you know, over 100,000 children die annually and half are less than six months of age, and almost all are in developing countries. These were depressing, um, but also interesting things for me to learn about because, of course, we see adults with RSV rather than kids by nature of the fact of, of our job. And as mentioned, there's no vaccine available yet, and there are past you know trials and tribulations of vaccines that have failed. But the reason why there's sort of more excitement about this is some really cool biology and the fact that we now know the prefusion structure of this RSV F protein, which is a major target for neutralizing antibodies. So um, uh, here, here comes Pfizer uh, looking for another billion dollar vaccine. And they created this bivalent prefusion F protein based vaccine. And this was their phase two proof of concept trial before going on to a big boy or girl phase three randomized trial. Okay. Wow. A hundred thousand kids dying annually from a virus. That's pretty uh, sad and terrifying. Um, well, I hope that this works. So let's start off with the study design. How do they do this study? So phase two clinical trial, double blind, sponsored by Pfizer in the US, uh, South America, and South Africa. There were five different 
arms of various single IM dose RSV vaccine. So it was two different doses and with or without aluminum hydroxide or placebo. They included pregnant women aged 18 to 49, and they had to be 24 to 36 weeks gestation. And then, of course, were randomized accordingly. And then they were monitored for um, safety through the use of an electronic diary for one week after vaccination, and then multiple visits thereafter, including at delivery, and then at one, six, and 12 months after birth. And then infants were enrolled at birth and evaluated one, two, four, six, and 12 months later. And what they did is um, serial blood work from both mom and baby, including at the time of delivery. And they also obtained umbilical cord blood and infants were randomly assigned to two different phlebotomy cohorts, which I won't go into. Um, the main outcomes here were safety endpoints and immunogenicity uh, endpoints. I should note this was an interim analysis, and it included 50% titers of RSV A and B and combined AB neutralizing antibodies in maternal serum at delivery and in uh, umbilical cord blood, as well as maternal to infant uh, transplacental transfer ratios. So, so what they're getting at there are the different types of titers because they want to see, okay, you know, what were the titers like for RSVA versus B or the neutralizing antibodies to both. Um, so yes, this was the interim analysis to inform the phase three trial. Okay. So what did the patients look like? 406 uh, women were included and 403 infants, 80% were white, 16% were black and 3% were Asian. The median age is 27. Median gestational age was 31 weeks. And uh, note that all were followed for about um, half a year for adverse events. Um, Shall I jump into the main results? Yeah, please take it away. So most of the post-vaccination reactions were mild to moderate, most often some pain or some redness. And the incidence of local reactions was higher among women who received the vaccine that contained uh, aluminum hydroxide than those who received the vaccine without aluminum hydroxide. Uh, and then there's no difference in adverse events one month after, which is a great sign. Uh, serious adverse events were rare and similar between the two groups. There was one stillbirth, uh, unfortunately, that was in the placebo group. And then they looked at the incidence of adverse events in, in infants, and those were similar for the vaccine or placebo uh, group. They were, of course, looking at you know congenital anomalies, and there was no increased risk. And then really what you're looking at when you want to assess immunogenicity is how much neutralizing uh, antibody titers could you identify. The units are kind of funny, but just take my word for it. The neutralizing antibody titers were far higher among individuals who received the vaccine compared to the placebo. And as noted, they also looked at the transplacental neutralizing antibodies, which I think is just, you know, fascinating. So of course, they're not powered to look at clinical endpoints, but really, you know, a crucial question is whether or not it led to lower RSV associated respiratory tract illness in the infants, right? So in the babies, right? Like what did they find? So what they found here was an 85% reduction in any medically attended RSV associated uh, lower respiratory tract infection if you receive the vaccine compared to the placebo, which is pretty impressive stuff. So that's that for the results here. Yeah. I mean, of course, acknowledging this was not the purpose of the trial, but like showing that clinical important result of like 85% reduction is a pretty big deal. Okay. Well, let's take a step back, I guess. What are some of the limitations here? 
Uh, so certainly um, it's a relatively small clinical trial, but let's be honest, this is amazing stuff. And of course, like you alluded to, we want to know more about the hard outcomes and they're going ahead with their phase three trial. Uh, so let's hope the results look just as good when we get to a much larger uh, study size. Okay. What was the take home? A take home point is that this vaccine elicited a really impressive neutralizing antibody response uh, in both mom and in baby. There weren't clear safety signals, and the data suggests that potentially, you know, the babies of moms who received the vaccine ha had lower RSV related disease compared to those who received placebo. Might be hard to say if it's changing your practice just because, you know, we don't see pediatric patients and we don't see a ton of pregnant patients. We see some though, but hey, is this going to change your practice? Yes, I regret even more not owning stock in Pfizer. <laughs> Jeez, man, like they are just blowing up these days. But no, jokes aside, I don't own stock in individual drug companies. Um, so I just think this is a incredible and amazing research and so freaking fascinating. Uh, and, and yeah, let's hope that this all holds up in subsequent phase three trials. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. I mean, my goodness, anything we can do to prevent childhood illnesses like this, ah, push forward, go forward, Pfizer, make this fixable. Agreed. All right. It is a good stuff scenario. And what good stuff are you talking about, John? Uh, so we're going to be talking about something local in Calgary and uh, one of the neighborhoods just uh, near us. Uh, a nice story about a family who's had some geese lay their eggs in their backyard for the last couple of years. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, the, the geese feel comfortable in the backyard. It seems like the babies do quite well. So uh, they've laid some more eggs for this season. The article's from the CBC. It's pretty cute. Uh, but just as a um, public safety announcement, if you do see geese out, especially if they're with their little goslings, stay away. Way. They can be pretty vicious, although we, we pride ourselves on the Canadian geese. My goodness, don't get in their way. Fair. Okay. Heartwarming and also a public service announcement. That was a two for one, listeners. Um, my stuff has nothing to do about geese. Instead, it's about a really cool trial called the Balance Trial. I'm not sure if you've heard about this one, John, but essentially it's for folks hospitalized on GIM or in the ICU who have bacteremia and randomizing them to seven days versus 14 days of antibiotics. Just a beautiful pragmatic trial. It sounds like they've recruited, I don't know, maybe like 1,500, almost 2,000 patients, and we're about to launch at Sinai, which is very exciting. Uh, I don't know, is Foothills, is your hospital part of this trial, John? Do you know? I haven't heard of it, actually, no. And, and sorry, just to clarify, is it any kind of bacteremia or is it specifically gram-negative? Any bacteremia. Whoa. As long as it isn't Staph aureus um, or any sort of, you know, fungal yeasty beastie and, and a couple other bugs. But yeah, and, you know, it's a non-inferiority trial. And I think this will be the definitive study. Uh, a couple of years ago now, you, you and I chatted about that one study published in Israel, the randomized trial that was non-inferiority, mainly for gram-negative bacteremia, but it was, you know, relatively uh, small. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. Look forward to seeing those results. Yes, me too. Okay, John, uh, take care, keep well, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Mike. Talk to you later. The Roundstable is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia-Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Roundstable, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support.